Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies, the show where I take a movie off the shelf, break it down, go into how it was made, what it means to my life, what it might mean to your life, all sorts of fun things. This month, we have a theme. We are talking about Oscar Best Picture winners. Last week, we talked about Titanic. This week, we're talking about one of the greatest movies ever made, Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 Best Picture winner, The Godfather. There is so much to get into, and we'll jump right into it in just a second. Before we do, though, I want to thank you for watching the show. We recently moved over to this channel from the Schmodown Entertainment Network, but I would still encourage you to go check out SEN. They've got a lot going on over there. Not least of all is the Schmodown itself. I've got a big belt match that just premiered last week for patrons. It will be out to the public very soon, so be sure to check out the Schmodown Entertainment Network and everything great that's going on there. And thank you for watching us here as we settle into our new home on my channel. There is so much that has already been written and already been said about the making of The Godfather. There's literally, I think, a movie and a TV show in development about it. So we're going to go into some of that stuff, but I'm not going to go super deep into the making of. We're going to talk a lot more about the Oscars, its legacy, the restoration process of this print of the film that we're going to be looking at today. So it's a bit of a mix of both, but we can go into the origins of the movie. And The Godfather started, as you probably know, as a novel, which is written by Mario Puzo. We've talked about Mario Puzo on this show before. He was the original screenwriter for 1978, Superman the Movie, directed by Richard Donner. Even though that script was heavily rewritten, Mario Puzo is still a huge figure when you talk about movies in the 1970s. Mario Puzo has been very clear and unapologetic about the fact that his motivation for writing The Godfather was to create a book that would get a mass audience and make him a lot of money. And people might think that this is cynical or that this is selling out but Puzo believed that art and commerce could coexist peacefully, as he told Charlie Rose in this interview back in 1996. Why should a reader not be catered to? I mean, readers read for pleasure. You have to please them. Uh, you, you don't have to sell out to them completely, but you can write a good book and keep an eye on the money. The Godfather went on to be a massive success. It sold millions of copies, so a movie adaptation was virtually assured, and Mario Puzo wasn't the only artist that was out there looking for a payday because the film industry in general was in desperate need of hits. Film attendance, which had spiked following World War II, had plummeted in the 50s following the introduction of television and throughout the 60s. So going into the 1970s, the act of going to watch a movie in a movie theater was in serious danger of going extinct. In fact, 1969 or 1970 was the year of lowest movie attendance ever. David Niven uh, has written, we would look back in the future, we would look back on going to the movies the way we look back now on vaudeville. This financial downturn affected, of course, all of Hollywood's major studios, and many of them ended up selling to larger corporate partners with much deeper pockets. In 1966, Paramount Pictures was bought by Gulf and Western, a big corporation that was looking to diversify its portfolio. And to bring the film division into the black, Gulf and Western turned to film producer Robert Evans. This is a small segment of a pitch that Robert Evans made to the board at Gulf and Western in 1970, pitching their upcoming adaptations of two best-selling books and how they could make all of them a bunch of money. But I want to bring up one project, and that's The Godfather. To bring up the similarity between The Godfather and Love Story, which are the two biggest books of the last decade, we developed both of these books, spurring the writers on to make these books what we think will be the great movies they're going to be. Love Story, the first book adaptation that Evans helped to shepherd in for Paramount, was indeed a massive hit. It made over $100 million, and it was almost unheard of at that time for a movie to make that much money. As a matter of fact, at one point, Love Story was the sixth highest grossing film of all time domestically. So Paramount had already had a huge home run from the new regime, and they were looking for another big hit. The studio wanted an Italian-American director to helm The Godfather for added authenticity, and after being turned down by a lot of different people, they ended up going toward a young filmmaker who'd shown a lot of promise, a former UCLA film student and protege of Roger Corman, who also just happened to be a third-generation Italian-American. How do you go about making a motion picture based upon a literary achievement of such wide acclaim? 
that seemingly desirous and impossible task fell to Oscar-winning writer-director Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola had already directed a couple of small, buzzy films, including You're a Big Boy Now, which had garnered a few Oscar nominations. That was actually his thesis project at UCLA, and he was hot off of co-writing the screenplay for Patton. He would win the Academy Award for writing during the production of The Godfather for his work on Patton. Francis Ford Coppola has been very open about the fact that he was not particularly impressed with Mario Puzo's novel when it was presented to him and didn't really want to do The Godfather. However, he had founded a company called American Zoetrope along with George Lucas, and that company was in dire financial straits. And the possibility of a huge studio payday for doing a big movie like The Godfather was a proposition that he could not turn down. I started encouraging Francis to think about our survival more than anything else. The time had come for us to get into lifeboats, and basically this Godfather idea was a lifeboat. After officially signing on to the film, Coppola and Mario Puzo adapted the screenplay for The Godfather together. And while this is often sometimes the stormiest part of the production process, according to Puzo, things actually went pretty smoothly. We wrote separately. He sent this stuff to me, I sent my stuff to him. And he made the final decision on what would be in there. Casting is where The Godfather famously hit a huge snag. And through the compression of time, when we see an actor's career, we generally tend to blend it into a string of great hits, but that's not necessarily always the case, particularly when you talk about Marlon Brando, who is the actor that both Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola wanted to play Don Vito Corleone, the patriarch of the Corleone crime family. At this point, Marlon Brando was nearly 20 years removed from his Oscar-winning turn and on the waterfront, and he hadn't had a major box office success in well over a decade. He also had a reputation as a very problematic actor. He was seen by a lot of people as a once-promising talent who'd kind of fallen into the traps of fame and his own eccentricities. Every time he mentioned Brando's name, one of the executives, executives is the right word, uh, said, if you mention his name again, you're out. After Coppola got Brando to agree to a screen slash makeup test, the executives were impressed with what they saw and agreed to cast Brando as long as the movie itself was insulated from delays that might have stemmed from some of his more erratic impulses. Robert Duvall as family lawyer slash consigliere Tom Hagen was an easy sell, as was James Caan as hothead oldest Corleone son Santino Sonny Corleone. Talia Shire, who was Coppola's sister, was cast as the daughter in the family, Connie Corleone. And Diane Keaton, who only had one other feature credit to her name, was cast as Kay, girlfriend of Michael Corleone and an outsider who also served as an audience surrogate. I think he's going to be consigliere. What's that? That's um, like a counselor, an advisor, very important to the family. One supporting cast member that I want to stop and talk about for just a moment is John Cazale, who plays Fredo Corleone, really a, a heartbreaking character. He is in this mafia family, and yet he is completely ill-equipped for any of it. He's susceptible to the life of crime, and yet has no stomach for the violence that comes with it. He's, in a weird way, maybe the most relatable member in that he's the most like those of us who are sitting and watching the film, and yet he is utterly lost in the ocean of what his family has become. Is that why you slapped my brother around in public? Oh, no, that, that, that was nothing, Mike. Now, now, uh... Molded me nothing by that. John Cazale was a noted theater actor prior to being cast in The Godfather. The Godfather was actually his first movie, and he only appeared in five films. The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. All five of those films were nominated for Best Picture, which is an insane statistic. But for me, the even more insane statistic is when you look at the cast of The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. Eight distinct cast members were nominated for Academy Awards for either one or both of those films. John Cazale was not one of them. As a matter of fact, he was never nominated for an Academy Award for his work in any film. Sadly, on March 13, 1978, Cazale died far too young of cancer prior to the release of the last movie in which he would appear, 1978's The Deer Hunter, which, like The Godfather and The Godfather Part II before it, would go on to win 
best picture. And every time that I watch The Godfather and I watch Fredo and I watch Cazale's performance, as well as his performance in any other film, I'm both completely impressed and grateful that we got these great performances from him and very sad about the performances that we didn't get to see. (laughs) With the rest of the Corleone family in place and a shooting date fast approaching, there was one crucial role that had not yet been cast, the role of Michael Corleone, youngest son of the family, a war hero who wanted nothing to do with the family business, yet through fate and circumstance, and yes, choice, ended up being the head of the Mafia Syndicate. Robert Redford was sought by the studio for the part of Michael Corleone, but Francis Ford Coppola wanted a young, unknown actor named Al Pacino, whom he'd just seen in a film called The Panic in Needle Park. But for Paramount, Al Pacino was a no-go. He wasn't a star, uh, which was not pleasing to the executives uh, at that time. He didn't look like stars look like at that time in the, the business. To avoid having to cast Pacino as Michael Corleone, the studio auditioned countless actors for the role, including Pacino's future castmate, James Kahn. Michael, hmm? why are those people bothering your father on a day like this? Huh? Well, that's because they know no Sicilian can refuse a request on his daughter's wedding day. Ultimately, with time running out, the studio relented and cast Pacino in the role to the great relief of Coppola, the other cast members in the film, and some of Coppola's close associates who had already been working on the project. A little point of memorabilia, that was Marsha Lucas, who was the editor, George's wife, who cut those tests all together. And she told me that she said, cast Al Pacino because he undresses you with his eyes. The Godfather was shot in the spring and summer of 1971, and while the production process wasn't nearly as tumultuous as some of Francis Ford Coppola's other films, most notably the hellish landscape that was the shooting of Apocalypse Now, it was still filled with stress over what could go wrong. Making The Godfather, the first Godfather, was just like nonstop anxiety and, you know, wondering when I was going to get fired. They were horrified with everything. They didn't like Brando. They thought he mumbled. They thought it was much too dark. I wasn't moving the camera. At this point, we should probably jump into the movie, and I'll interject little things here and there. And we start with the opening scene of The Godfather, which I think highlights the brilliance of two of the people involved with making the movie. One of them is Marlon Brando as Don Corleone. Buonasera. Buonasera. What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? The other genius at work here is cinematographer Gordon Willis, who was at the beginning of an incredibly accomplished career, including not only The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, but All the President's Men, Annie Hall, Manhattan, a lot of classics. And another great cinematographer, Conrad Hall, gave Gordon Willis the nickname The Prince of Darkness because of his unprecedented use of darkness while shooting his movies. For decades, the ethic was to create a fully exposed negative. But what Gordon did was to create a negative that no one could mess with. There's only one way to print The Godfather, and that is dark. We're going to talk about the color of the film in a while, but first I want to talk about the brightness, the exposure of the movie, and why what Gordon Willis was doing was so risky for its time. Because before the advent of computers, you had to adjust everything by hand with a movie that was either chemically or with lights, etc. And so when most cinematographers were lighting a film, they would often shoot it a little bit brighter than maybe they even intended because they could go in in post-production and make it darker. Or at least they could shoot it so it wasn't so dark that if the movie needed to be brought up, if it needed to be brighter in post-production, they could do that without blowing the film out or making everything look grainy. Gordon Willis shot and lit this film and many of his other films so dark that there was no adjusting the brightness. The dark look that you captured in camera, the actual image that was on the celluloid that went through the camera, you could not adjust to be brighter. The look 
was the look. And that was very, very risky. It really shows just how much faith and trust Francis Ford Coppola had in his cinematographer that he would even allow him to shoot the movie this dark. Because if they had a problem with it, they were either stuck with the way that it looked or they would have to go back and reshoot the scenes, which was really not an option. In addition to the potential risk with not being happy with the image, there was one practical concern that studios brought up with Gordon Willis's approach, as explained by William Fraker, who himself is a great cinematographer who shot movies like Rosemary's Baby, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Bullet. It wasn't uh, the fact that, that it was so dark. It was the fact that the studio said, how are we going to show this at the drive-ins? That's the old adage to say, you can't, you got to get, you got to put a light in, you got to see the people, you got to see the people because of the drive-ins, the drive-ins, the drive-ins. Well, the drive-ins were going out at that time, so that didn't mean much to us. But as many people have pointed out, the entire film isn't as dark as some of its most famous darkest scenes. The opening sequence actually is a great juxtaposition of the almost overwhelming darkness of Don Corleone's office, and then the very bright outside wedding scenes. It, it really sets up a great counterbalance between the darkness of the Corleone family by business and the lightness of the Corleone family by blood. Brando is unquestionably the lead of the film for its first half hour, but the attention turns to his sons after Vito Corleone is nearly assassinated early on in the film, which is a move that Coppola found reminiscent of another cinema classic, which at that time was just over a decade old. The shooting, great detail. The Don is the main character of the movie. So as in Psycho, we are totally thrown when he is shot. One of the things I love about great movies is that they are usually made with such depth and such passion that you discover new things every single time you watch them. And I actually discovered a couple new things this time, but my favorite was the scene after Don Corleone, Vito Corleone, is shot. Michael finds out, he sees a newspaper headline as he's walking with Kay around Radio City Music Hall that his father's been shot. He runs to a phone booth to call his brother Sonny to see if he can get any more information. And as he goes in, he shuts the phone booth door behind them and Coppola shoots the scene with Michael Corleone on the phone inside the phone booth and Kay outside. And this is the first time that we've seen Michael shut Kay out of something that's happening. This is a very crucial point in the movie. It's a very crucial point in Michael's life because this attempt on Vito's life ultimately is what brings him into the family. And the shutting of doors, the exclusion of Kay becomes a recurring theme, a recurring motif between these characters, not least of all the final shot of the movie. And I, I think it's really a tribute to how dense this film is or really how much I'm into the story that I never really noticed that until this time, that this is the first step to Michael's life of crime that will eventually lead to him shutting everybody out of his life, and it's exemplified by this one simple action of shutting the phone booth door and Coppola staging the scene, the scene with Kay outside, Michael inside. This literal division between them has begun. Shortly after this, Michael's real second big step into a life of crime is when he goes to see his father in the hospital and saves him from a second assassination attempt. And I didn't realize until this time around as well that the visitor who comes by, the well-wisher who Michael recruits to help him pose as a bodyguard, is named Enzo the Baker, which I knew, but it didn't occur to me that this is the same person at the beginning of the film whom Don Corleone intervened to keep from being deported from the country at the behest of his future father-in-law. You want Enzo to stay in this country and you want your daughter to be married. Who are you? I am Enzo, the Baker. I'm sure a lot of you have probably made that connection, but like I said, this is such a dense and engrossing film, and that sequence in particular is full of so much suspense that I hadn't really just stopped to connect those threads in my head together. And again, I think this sets up a very subtle difference between even father and son. Don Corleone's management style uh, was very magnanimous. I mean, he was, a, he was a brutal guy. He's a gangster, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on. But he collected allies. He did things to win himself friends, and that ended up winning him an ally at a very crucial moment in his life that may have very well saved his life, may have well have saved his son's life by having another person at that hospital. In contrast, we 
see over the course of this film and really the next film, Michael's management style is very different from his father's and it ends up costing him allies to the point where he pretty much severs ties with almost everybody in his life. Again, it's a very subtle way of establishing the way that two Dons, even though Michael Corleone supposedly is the best choice for being Don in the family, they have very different styles and it results in very different outcomes for both men. If there is trouble, I stay here to help you, for your father, for your father. One of The Godfather's most famous and best scenes is the assassination of the corrupt police captain McCluskey and Salazzo, who is the gangster who arranged the assassination attempt on Vito Corleone's life. It's a masterclass in tension, and I love that it is the culmination not only of the filmmaking techniques, sound design, etc., but the fact that you care for this character. You're both simultaneously hoping that Michael does and doesn't go through with it. That's a really, really well-written story, and it's a crucial scene in the film, something that Francis Ford Coppola knew before he'd even shot a frame of the movie. Rushing this would ruin it, otherwise the scene can't be ruined. In addition to being the turning point of the movie, this scene was also a turning point in the studio's faith in both Coppola and Pacino. Coppola, knowing that he was sitting on, as he said, an unruinable scene, moved the restaurant scene earlier into the production schedule and then edited together a version that he showed to executives at Paramount and Gulf and Western. When those executives saw this scene, it finally clicked in exactly what everybody was going for, both in front of and behind the camera. And a lot of that pressure went away, freeing up Coppola and Pacino to make the rest of the movie without this sword hanging over their heads that they could be fired at any minute. When that scene, Francis's cut of that scene, was seen by the head of the corporation, then all the pressure that was on Francis disappeared. With Michael exiled in Sicily, things take an even more tragic turn for the Corleone family when Sonny, the oldest son played by James Caan, is baited into a toll booth ambush where he is massacred by a dozen guys with machine guns. The exceedingly violent end of Sonny Corleone was not without its perils as actor James Caan had to be rigged with dozens of essentially miniature explosives called squibs which simulate gunshots just before we're about to go he's wiring me and he goes i never put this many squibs on a guy in my life i said i, I don't think it was necessary for you to tell me that now sonny's death only further cements michael's fate to become the head of the Corleone family. It's obvious that Fredo's not up to the task, and now the oldest son is dead, and this is how the mafia works, especially the Corleone family. It has to stay in the family. Tom Hagen, very trusted ally, can't be the Don. He can't be the head of the family, and when you look at story arcs or character development, I can't think of one in movie history that is executed as well or maybe as, as, as heartbreaking at some points as Michael Corleone's arc because he starts as a hero, he goes from a tragic hero, and by the time you get to the end of Godfather 2 going into Godfather 3, he's almost an antagonist, and, and it all seems believable. You're with him every step of the way. You understand why he's taking all of these different actions, and yet your heart hurts for him. You see the life that he chooses not to lead, and you understand the mistakes that he's making. It's really great storytelling. Michael is caught in a trap that he can't escape from. Not only does he know it, his father knows it. And all of this is expressed in a great scene that comes after the halfway point in the film between these two characters in the garden that was actually written by the writer of the screenplay for Chinatown, Robert Town. I never, I never wanted this for you. What makes this scene even more remarkable is that when you trace back the entire movie, this is the only scene really that Brando and Pacino have together. There is the scene in the hospital, but Don Corleone is incapacitated. There's a beautiful moment where he kind of cries when he sees that his son is there, either happy that his son is there to ha help him or, or perhaps sad that he understands where this is going to go. But there's no dialogue exchange between them. And then the two of them are in a group scene that occurs shortly before this scene. But this is literally the only time in this movie where Michael Corleone and his father sit and talk to each other. Other. And it's such a testament to the storytelling done around these characters, to the writing of this scene in particular, that you understand the history between these two characters and that all you need is this scene to really speak to that history and carry it through not just this movie, but the rest of the franchise. This was enough time, Michael. It was enough time. We'll get there, Pop. 
The Godfather ends in a vengeful bloodbath as Michael Corleone orders the execution of the heads of the other crime families in New York, as well as the Las Vegas holdout Mo Green. It's one of the best examples of cross-cutting in cinema history. Michael is in this very holy ceremony of the communion of what is to be his godson. At the same time, these profane acts are being committed at the same time. You have the organ music. It's such an operatic crescendo to this film and then we end very small where he's also organized the killing of his own brother-in-law the father of his godson and the movie ends with him lying to his wife's face saying he didn't have anything to do with it and we have this very simple scene where Kay is shut out of Michael's life as everyone comes in to recognize him as Don Corleone. This is the beginning of a conflict, this fraying of their relationship that will carry over into Godfather Part Two, and then explodes at the end of that film as well. And I think that, that ending it on such a down note is again something that shows that there was a lot of confidence to be had in both Coppola and the film because you could end it on this big bloodbath, but you don't. You end it on this very small personal moment uh you know some people might say oh is that it i think there was some faith in the audience as well to understand that even though this is the simple act of closing the door it had great significance to these characters and that's what matters we'll continue our look at the godfather in just a moment but first a word from our sponsor this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something out there that's interfering with your happiness or keeping you from achieving the goals that you want to achieve? I know a lot of times I'm so focused on doing everything out there that I need to do that I'm not worried about myself. Mental health is a very important thing, and it's critically important that you seek out the help that you need for your specific needs. BetterHelp is a service that will assess your personal needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist online. And usually you can start your communication with these therapists in under 48 hours. Now, this is not a crisis line. This is not self-help. This is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise that may not be available in many local areas, and BetterHelp is a resource that is available worldwide. Plus, you can log in anytime and securely message your therapist 24 hours a day, seven days a week. With BetterHelp, you're going to get timely and thoughtful responses from the counselor you're matched to, and you can schedule weekly video or phone appointments. You don't have to go to waiting rooms like you do with traditional therapy. It's all done online. BetterHelp's also committed to making sure the match that you get is right for you, which means that you can change counselors anytime you want for free, and it's more affordable than traditional therapy, and financial aid is available for those who need it. BetterHelp wants to help you start living a better life today, and you can visit their website right now and read the testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com movies. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states to meet the need. And there's a special offer for viewers and listeners to this show. All my movies listeners get 10% off their first month if you go to betterhelp.com movies. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot movies. And I want to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's show. I mean, in five years, the Corleone family is going to be completely legitimate. Trust me. I think that The Godfather is as much a tragedy as it is a crime film. And I've certainly heard the people over the years who have said that it paints Italian-Americans in a bad light or, or it's stereotypical. And I think that's partially because a lot of people have taken so much of what this movie has done and recycled it so many times that it seems like every depiction of Italian-Americans is this thing because people are just recycling and reinventing The Godfather. But the one thing that I really do want to push back on is the idea that you know it glorifies mob violence or it glorifies the idea of the mafia. I think that people saying that this glorifies violence or the mob really have a fundamental misreading of the actual message of this movie, which is that there is going to be some glorification at the beginning because you have to show why people are doing this. You know, Why are they criminals? Why are they drawn to this? Why would you join the mafia? That's the romance part. 
And then the third act is the part where everything falls apart. And I think that's what you see in The Godfather. So I, I think that a lot of times when people say that this sends a bad message, they're not exactly processing all of the messages that this movie is sending because there are no characters at the end of this movie that end happy or in a good place or with a good life. It is about how destructive this can be, even like Don Corleone, if you set out with honorable intentions. I think the only points that the movie makes that you could say come out in favor of or that are sympathetic to criminal life are the parallels that Michael draws between actual power, meaning elected officials, and the kind of criminal power that he commands. And when he has that conversation with Kay where she says that, you know, senators and presidents don't have men killed. My father is no different than any other powerful man. Any man who's responsible for other people. I don't think that that's a false parallel. And as a matter of fact, I think that's as much an indictment of actual power uh, than it is uh, an absolution of criminal power. Senators and presidents don't have men killed. Oh. Who's being naive, Kay? Following the end of shooting, Francis Ford Coppola retired to the editing room with his co-editors, William Reynolds and Peter Zinner. And there was an ultimatum that was delivered to them from Paramount Pictures and Robert Evans. Even though they knew just how sprawling the screenplay was and just how big the movie was that they had asked Coppola to make, they also required that it hit a certain time lest the movie be pulled away from the San Francisco-based editing crew. Bob Evans told me that, Francis, if you bring the film down to L.A. and show it to me and it's over two hours and 10 minutes, we're gonna yank the film and bring it and finish cutting it in LA. Worried about losing control of his film this late in the process, Coppola relented and cut half an hour out of the film, then showed it to Robert Evans in Los Angeles. Evans was very grave and he looked at me and he says, you know, you shot a movie, but you brought me a trailer. Ultimately, Coppola won yet another round in the making of The Godfather War and delivered the film at its final runtime of nearly three hours. The final brushstroke on the masterpiece that is The Godfather is the score by composer Nino Rota. And I think that most people, when they see that Rota won an Academy Award, would assume that he won the Oscar for this movie. After all, it is one of the most famous and best scores written for any movie. But Nino Rota did not win an Oscar for The Godfather. He won an Oscar for The Godfather Part Two. The Godfather was actually not even nominated for an Academy Award, or at least it kind of was. Originally, The Godfather was among the nominees for Best Original Score when Academy Award nominations were announced in 1973. The Academy Award nomination, however, was later rescinded after it was discovered that Nino Rota had reused part of his score from a 1958 Italian film called Fortunella. Here's a little snippet. I think that the similarities are going to be pretty easy to find. The disqualification of the Godfather score, which almost assuredly would have won the Oscar that year, actually wrote a weird other chapter in Hollywood history. The movie that did win the Oscar that year was called Limelight. It was the last American film directed by and starring Charlie Chaplin. It had been released in 1952, 20 years previously, but it had never come out in Los Angeles, which was the qualifying market for the Academy Awards. The film was re-released in 1972 in Los Angeles. It was deemed eligible for the Oscars, and the score for the film was nominated for the Academy Award. One of the composers of that score was Charlie Chaplin, a Hollywood legend. He'd been given an honorary Academy Award just the previous year. With The Godfather gone, that really opened up the category, and the score for Limelight won the Oscar. It turned out to be the only competitive Academy Award that one of the most recognizable and famous faces of all time, Charlie Chaplin, would ever win. The Godfather was released on March 24th, 1972, over a year before the Academy Awards ceremony at which it would win Best Picture, and the movie got rapturous reviews from critics and even better notices from audiences everywhere. The Godfather went on to make over $130 million at the domestic box office, which made it the highest grossing film of all time. Adjusted for inflation, The Godfather is the 25th highest grossing film ever released domestically and the third biggest hit in the history of Paramount Pictures behind only Raiders of the Lost Ark and 1956's The Ten Commandments. 
But The Godfather didn't just impress critics and film goers, it also impressed Coppola's fellow filmmakers. And it made a huge impression on one in particular, a young director who was currently working in television, but just a few years later would take a creature feature about a killer shark and break the box office records that were set by The Godfather. I was pulverized by the story and by just the cumulative effect the film had on me. And um, I also felt that I should quit, that there was no reason to continue directing because I would never achieve that level of confidence and the ability to tell a story such as the one I had just experienced. So in a way, it shattered my confidence. Following the disqualification of Nino Rota's score, The Godfather ended up being nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Robert Duvall, Al Pacino and James Caan were all nominated in the Best Supporting Actor category, much to the chagrin of Al Pacino. He felt that his role, and honestly it is, should have been considered a lead performance, and he actually boycotted the ceremony, didn't even show up because he didn't feel like he should be in the supporting category. It turns out that all three of them lost the award to Joel Grey in his role as the Master of Ceremonies from the film Cabaret. On Oscar night, there was actually some suspense because The Godfather lost several awards to Cabaret. Cabaret did win one for which The Godfather was not nominated, which was Best Cinematography. Insane when you think about how influential that movie was on the art form. But it lost in a lot of other categories in which it was up head-to-head with The Godfather, including Best Director, which went to Bob Fosse. Some of the other nice things that have happened to me in the last couple days may turn me into some sort of hopeful optimist and ruined my whole life. The Godfather did win big though, winning Best Adapted Screenplay for Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola and Best Picture for which producer Albert S. Ruddy took home the Academy Award. But it was Marlon Brando's win for Best Actor as Don Vito Corleone that created one of the most famous moments in Oscar history. Brando had already announced that he was not going to be at the ceremony due to Hollywood's consistent depictions of Native Americans in movies and on television and amid the ongoing occupation of Wounded Knee, South Dakota by Native American activists in 1973. So when the envelope was opened and his name was announced as the winner of Best Actor, a woman named Sasheen Littlefeather took to the stage and declined the award on behalf of Brando. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, A few months later, Brando told talk show host Dick Cavett that the reason he declined the award was that he felt the negative depictions of Native Americans were negatively affecting generations of Native American children. Indian children seeing Indians represented as savage, as ugly, as nasty, vicious, treacherous, uh, drunken. Uh, They grow up only with a negative image of themselves, and it it lasts a lifetime. When asked why his decision drew so many boos from the Oscar audience, I'm sure you heard him in that clip that I played just a few seconds ago, Brando theorized that perhaps the Hollywood elite didn't really appreciate their night of glitz and glamour interrupted by a real-world issue. Well, actually, I think the people were booing at me. Uh, They were booing because they thought, well, this is this moment is sacrosanct and you're ruining our fantasy with the intrusion of a little reality. One of the amazing things about The Godfather is that it wasn't just a hit for its time. We've seen that so many other times before where a movie is a critical hit or a box office hit or an Oscar hit in the generation or in the decade when it was released, but over time, its influence lessens. That's not the case with The Godfather. In 1997, the American Film Institute named The Godfather the third best American film ever made. Ten years later, in 2007, when the AFI did its second list, it moved up to number two, just behind Citizen Kane. In 2002, Sight and Sound, the poll that's done by the British Film Institute every 10 years, of film minds, directors, critics, you name it from across the world, named a combination of The Godfather and The Godfather Part II the fourth best film made worldwide of all time. But it's not just critics that love The Godfather, it's a populist hit as well. On the IMDb Top 250, The Godfather is there at number three. When you go over to Letterboxd, which is a site that generally attracts more of a cinephile crowd, The Godfather is there at number three as well. Across country lines, race, 
class, decades, age, you name it, The Godfather remains one of the most important, recognizable, and influential films ever made. And one of the most referenced films. It has filtered down now into countless movies and TV shows from creators who were influenced by the film in the nearly 50 years since it came out. The Godfather is the sum of all wisdom. The Godfather is the answer to any question. The version of The Godfather that I own that you see over my shoulder here is labeled as the Francis Ford Coppola Restoration. It was released back in 2008, although I think that a more accurate term may be the Gordon Willis Restoration. And this is where the discussion of how film is done in post-production, color grading, etc. comes back into the mix. Without getting too, too deep into the details, before the advent of digital filmmaking, the source code, the master copy of every film was the negative. This was the holy grail. If you wanted to strike a print of a movie from the highest possible quality source, you went to the negative. And if the negative of a film was lost, then the best that you could do is make a copy of a copy. And generally, when a movie was ready for wide release, you would strike a copy of the film uh, from the negative, and then that copy of the film would then be copied to make all of the different roles and reels that would be sent out. And then what would usually happen over decades is that when it was time to get a copy of the film to put on television or when it was time to get a copy of the film that would go on VHS or even for something like a re-release, studios would not go back to the original negative. They would go back to another one of these copies that was made and that would be their source. So you still wouldn't have the film necessarily as shot. Sometimes if you're watching a movie on TV or you're watching a movie on VHS, it's a copy of a copy of a copy maybe even from the original print that was struck from the negative. The result of this process is that as you were getting copies of copies and, and as the image degraded every time that it would be iterated again and again, the very deep and dark colors of Gordon Willis's cinematography would smudge and blur. And instead of these very sharp, differentiated light and dark areas, you would just get these kind of blurry, smudgy things. And, and for decades, this was the version of The Godfather that people saw. So that when I saw it at the 25th anniversary, I thought, well, maybe it's not as good as it was, but I don't remember what it looked like and uh, there are not many people alive who have seen it in a theater and or, or who remember how beautiful the photography and the prints were in the 2000s paramount purchased dreamworks which is the company that steven spielberg co-founded Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg, of course, came up around the same time. They had a lot of the same common co-workers, George Lucas, etc. So Coppola called up Spielberg, who now had very close contact with Paramount, and asked to see if the original negative for The Godfather could be found, which luckily it was. There was some damage. They could repair some of that damage by hand. They did some of the other repair digitally. But the point is that there was a great master source of the footage from The Godfather that that could then be used to restore the film to its original glory. The first step in this restoration process was to scan every single frame of the film into a computer, and this had to be done manually on a machine so that you could then have the file and get ready to go in and tweak the colors, tweak the exposure, etc. And this is where I have a little bit of experience, not with restoration, but with working with film in this way, because in the early 2010s, from around 2010 to 2012, I worked at a color grading company. They did uh, the color for a lot of big movies, uh, and a lot of commercials as well. I worked in the commercial film vault. And as I mentioned, this was about 10 or 12 years ago. So this was during the changeover. So we got a lot of stuff that was shot on digital, but we also got a lot of stuff every single day that was shot on 35 millimeter film. The volume of film that would come in and out of our vault uh, was pretty high. Every single role that came in, and this is essentially the raw footage that was shot uh, for all these different projects, had to be put through a, a cleaning machine. And it was basically kind of a reel-to-reel -reel machine. You put one side of the film here, and then it would go through a complicated series of gears and everything. Uh, it would go down underneath into this chemical solution, which would clean out the dirt and dust and debris, and then it would spool itself on the other side of the machine. But you had to train 
for weeks on this machine to use it unsupervised because if you thread the film wrong, if you get one of the connections wrong, it could run the film up against a rough edge or something and essentially damage or destroy that film. And like I said, this is the raw footage. If you destroy the original film that a commercial's been shot on, there's no other copy to go back to. You can't get that back. So the pressure was high and you had to make sure you knew how to use these machines because if you damaged a roll of film, that could very easily be the end of your career at this particular company. The reason I bring this up is that that's how much pressure was on me in a commercial vault to not damage the raw footage of like, you know, a Nike commercial. Now imagine that you are the engineer who has to load the original negative for the Godfather onto the machine that's then going to spool the film through to individually scan each one of these frames. And know that the margin of error, if you screw up, is that you will destroy the only master copy of one of the greatest films ever made forever. That's a lot of stress. No one wanted to call anyone, neither at the studio or a filmmaker, and say, hey, you know, we've had a little bit of a problem here. We've kind of destroyed 30 feet of the original negative. So once it became that the physical structure of the film could go through some kind of machine, at that point you take a leap of faith and you put up the first reel and you close your eyes and you make a wish and you kind of pray and we got very lucky on this show. So why were they scanning the negative of The Godfather into a computer at all? Why not just leave it in a safe bunker somewhere? Well, you can thank the Coen brothers for this in a roundabout way, because every movie that you've seen that has color in it has had its color graded or adjusted at some point. The color that you see on the screen is very rarely, when you're shooting on film or even digital, what the director of photography is shooting. It goes through different processes after it's shot to tweak and adjust this color. Prior to around the year 2000, this process of manipulating the color uh, for the final look of a film was a very complicated technical process. It essentially involved breaking film down into red, green, and blue elements, and then uh, combine, recombining all of those elements into a print. Sometimes it involved chemical manipulation. A lot of times it was shining a light, different amounts of light through the red and the green and the blue, and then you would composite all three together. It was very time consuming. You had to do this with the original negative, which could risk the negative itself and it was very trial and error based things so you'd have to go through this whole process look at the film if you didn't like the way that it looked you had to go back to formula do the whole thing again look at it again etc it was very complicated and very involved the coen brothers for their film 2000's oh brother where art thou really were pioneers in the process of doing di which is to do this color grading on a computer so instead of actually having to physically do all these different things you could scan the film into a computer frame by frame and then do all these tweaks on a computer so that you can see first of all what you're doing in real time and there's a lot more versatility with the software that was made and written so you could do a lot more with the color than you could have done using the old processes. This is now the process that almost everything you see, films, TV, commercials, goes through. It's all computerized. You have people that sit and work on machines. You have big bays where directors and DPs and, and artists who, who specialize in color correction will go and decide what the look of a film is going to be. It has really changed in the last 20 or 30 years almost completely uh, from what it was before. So now that they were able to have the original negative of The Godfather, they could scan the entire film into a computer, and then they also brought in Gordon Willis to consult so that they could make a version of The Godfather using digital color grading that was as close as possible to that first generation of prints that were struck from the original negative to make the movie look exactly like Willis intended when he shot and as close as possible to what people saw in the theaters back in 1972. The look of The Godfather, beyond the exposures, was really created in the laboratory with color timing and it's very precise color timing. Mr. Willis's general comment is that it's four point yellow, one point red. What I love about this is that because this is all digital and because we don't have to worry about degradation and making copies of copies, we may now be seeing when we watch The Godfather through this restoration, the closest that anyone has ever seen to what the intention was for how this movie should have looked. And this is what I love about modern technology. The idea that you can use it to restore things. The idea that you can use it to go back to the original intention. I think it's very ironic that Francis Ford Coppola founded American Zoetrope with George Lucas. George Lucas 
famously, perhaps infamously, has largely used digital technology to go back and change things. With this restoration, Francis Ford Coppola is using digital technology to go back and make things as much like they were and should have been over the years. We're not guessing. It's not something like an Orson Welles film, a Magnificent Ambersons, where we're going back to it and we have to go by his notes and, you know, you're trying to tweak it and get to as close as what he might have wanted as possible. Here we have the technology and we're able to create versions of these films that meet filmmaker approval and that match what they did and what their original intention was, not what their subsequent decisions have been. They are really gorgeous transfers, and it is a stunningly beautiful film. So if you can find one of these restored versions of the movie, I think it's the dominant version that you can find out on Blu-ray right now. Please seek it out because it really is a revelation just how gorgeous this film was. It brings it up to par. You know, I grew up in a generation where I saw it on VHS, you know, standard definition four by three for decades. Uh, it blew me away revisiting this movie and seeing how beautiful it is. In addition to this restoration, there are a lot of new features that are also on this Blu-ray disc. One of them is a contemporary look back at the making of the film. And this documentary really focuses on how many things almost didn't happen that ended up being crucial things things that made this film a massive hit. Francis happened to have been really new in the business. He only made three films, but he was Italian. And he didn't even want to make the picture. There's also a short piece on here about The Godfather's cultural influence following its release. A classic like The Godfather opens itself up for uh, satirizing simply because it's so much a part of the culture. It's so much a part of our, all of our lives. As well as a fascinating look at the restoration process of the movie. We're pretty sure from the get-go that we were never going to do this process optically. I think that time has passed. And so the decision was then made is you were going to scan this. And so then the question was, how would you accomplish that? There's also a look at the editing process on the movie. If I had shown you the two hour and 45 version, you had taken it to LA and I show you the two hour 10 version, you, you take it. So you were gonna take it to LA no matter what I did. And a compilation of some trivia, including the origins of one of the most famous Godfather lines. So that when they finish in the murder of Paulie, he's supposed to say, leave the gun. And Richie Castellano added, but take the cannoli because his wife had told him. But he, he improvised that line. This release also includes the archived version of most of the special features from the 2001 DVD box set of the trilogy, including a behind-the-scenes documentary that looks at all three films. I know you don't want to hear it, Sonny, but if your father dies, make the deal. Well, it's easy for you to say he's not your father. <laughs> a look at Francis Ford Coppola's original production binder for the movie. And as I would go through the book for each, uh, division, and really I made up the divisions. I broke them down. I noticed here scene one, scene two, scene three. And a discussion with Gordon Willis about the cinematography of the film. Uh, a lot of things that I do with overhead lighting or a lot of things with that form of lighting actually came out of a necessity to deal with Marlon Brando in a given kind of makeup. It was an example of designing something to make one person work and it was extended throughout the rest of the movie. There's also a vintage behind-the-scenes special from 1971. We Italians, uh, we have an old saying that, uh, that life is so difficult that we need two fathers. And I guess that's what's so nice about uh, having a godfather. And several deleted scenes, including one where Sonny mobilizes the Corleone family following the attempt on his father's life, and an extended scene between Michael and Vito Corleone in the garden, where Michael asks about vengeance for the murders of Sonny and his first wife in Sicily. What about Sonny? What about Sicily? And that wraps it up for my discussion on The Godfather. There's so much more that has been said and could be said, uh, but that's where we're going to stop for today. Thank you so much for watching here on my channel. As I mentioned, please also be sure to check out the Schmodown Entertainment Network. There has never been more stuff Schmodown and Schmodown related, so please head over there. I'm still so happy to be partners with Skybound and SEN as we continue to be partners on this show. And I would love if you would go down to the description below and become an audio subscriber. That really does help us build the base of the show. Uh, if you like what you're watching and you want to take it to go, uh, I would love to have you become a subscriber to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, anywhere you can find audio podcasts, you can find that information down below. 
Please come back next week. We're going to be talking about another Best Picture winner as we continue Best Picture Month here on All My Movies. It's another crime drama that I'm very excited to talk about. We'll get into that next week, but until then, it's time to go back on the show. Thanks for watching. <laughs>